Coming up on today's episode of the Realized Podcast. Uh, the total investment in the product is about $275,000. Of that, about 150 to 160000 is mine. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in, in, in my life. I'd, I'd go through it again. Yeah, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I hesitate to, to make them believe that I'm a wealthy guy. I'm not. I was bankrupt at the end of the cancer surgery. They talk about the failure solving the fentanyl problem across the United States. In their discussion of the failure components are the things we just talked about, alternative drugs and rehabilitative services, tapering methodology that slowly gets a person off of fentanyl. They don't have a clue that I'm out here, okay? They will in a few weeks. So today's episode is one of a three-part series of what I call the opioid crisis. So today's episode, I have on the amazing Neil Jackson, Neil was a former fentanyl addict. He went through treatment for cancer where he was prescribed fentanyl and became addicted to the patch and struggled to get off. And what he managed to do as a result of this was he created a patch called Fenblock, which helps to block the flow of fentanyl um, into the body so that you can slowly uh, get yourself off of fentanyl or the drug itself. It uses a tapering method so you can apply more of this patch to the fentanyl patch um, over a course of time where, so for him, it took him 14 months to get off fentanyl as a result of using this patch. And it's an amazing story. And what he's doing with the drug, uh, well, with the patch now um, undergoing FDA approval, he's looking to bring it to market as soon as possible. And I think this patch is going to be a game changer in terms of reducing that number of deaths as a result of fentanyl and drugs of the sort. You know, Neil talks about the the money he's put into this product, the like going through the cancer and, you know, losing his leg as a result of the cancer. And at, you know, 70, I think he's 72 or 74, still pushing to help others and help the families which are affected by fentanyl addiction, the opioid crisis in America. And it's just an incredible story. So, if you could, please like, subscribe, share the podcast, and I hope you enjoy this episode with Neil Jackson. You can find all his links down in the description below. So yes, please enjoy this episode. Okay. Neil, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Obviously, we've been talking about getting this done for a little while. Um, so just to start off with, I do the same with everyone when they come on the podcast, and that's just tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Neil Jackson. Uh, I'm a uh, successful uh, uh uh, living representative of going through cancer surgery uh, and surviving. Uh, so I'm real fortunate there. Uh, as a result of the cancer surgery, um, I, uh, like most people, uh, were treated with uh, a high amount of, of different painkillers, uh, starting with morphine and, and, uh, and then ending up with basically a, a full mix of opioids from hydromorphine, hydrocodone, oxycodone, and fentanyl. Uh, so it took me uh, about seven years of that uh, to one day realize that uh, I was in trouble. Uh, I was asking for more and more medication from an unwilling uh, doctor. And uh, we were at points of, uh, of uh, real contention. And uh, I felt that uh, I was really, really, you know, abusing his uh, ethos of do no harm. So he was confused as to and sent him to the point where if he refused my wishes, which he had not for years, I kept growing and growing in use. 
but he, we felt that there was a, you know, we we're starting to rub each other the wrong way. And uh, so I decided, among other reasons, that uh, that was one paramount reason that I needed to change my habits. Um, I started to get off of the oral opioids uh, and uh, it took me about seven months of just basically taking the pills and chipping away at them. In other words, reducing the size of the pill. And over a seven month period of time, I was able to get off of a tremendous amount uh, of, of oral opioids, which were about uh, 24 milligrams of hydromorphin a day and uh, 36 uh, milligrams of, of uh, hydro, hydrocodeine. And um, uh, so when I got through those dosages, I felt fairly good. But what my next, I guess, uh, uh, requirement was, what do I do with this thing I've got as a fentanyl patch? And I had been using that fentanyl patch for seven years. Um, it was a it's prescribed to me at 100 micrograms per hour, which is the largest patch you can find. And I, I imagine it, it's the largest globally, European or whatever, whether it's U.S. market or not. And um, I was sometimes putting two patches on. So uh, I was really, really in trouble. And so I looked at the patch and I said, <clears throat> I, can't, I can't fold the patch. It wouldn't stick on my skin. I can't cut it because then the opioids would drain out. The fentanyl would drain out. And uh, so I didn't know really how to, to get myself off that patch. I didn't want to take a 100 microgram patch and then just ask my doctor to, to prescribe the 75 microgram, which was the next level down. I thought that the 25 difference, 25 micrograms difference, 25% of you know my intake to change that radically would, I didn't know what it would do, but I didn't want to take the risk. So uh, any yeah. impending, you know, uh, bad feelings and uh, um, so withdrawals. So I came up with a way of, of uh, developing a barrier that would, um, and the flow of a particular volume of the fentanyl. And I started out at 5% coverage, up to 10, 15, 20, then up to 30, 35. And uh, I found myself over a period of 14 months uh, being able to uh, end my use of fentanyl. And uh, I found that everything in my health uh, uh, started to turn around. Um, I had experienced during the time of addiction uh, serious uh, sessions of depression where uh, suicide was very easily contemplated. And uh, that's a scary place to be, uh, especially when you have yeah. family and grandchildren and things. And so um, those, those types of emotions, uh, they disappeared. Um, I was, had been diagnosed with glaucoma. Uh, that disappeared. Um, I had been diagnosed with high blood pressure. That disappeared. I had been diagnosed, well, I had a lot of migraine headaches. They, they went away. I had, a, I had serious bouts with nausea. They went away. And uh, so it's been now almost five years. And, uh, you know, I'm on my way. Uh, one particular thing made me different than, say, other options, which were alternative drugs. Okay. This, this is not a pharmaceutical. Uh, the barrier has no pharmacological elements in it at all. It's just pure barrier material that I've uh, patented uh, through 3M. 
and um, uh, out of Minnesota in the U.S. I think you all, everybody's familiar with uh, 3M. Uh, so we use yeah. that. And um, then, uh, well, I'm kind of, I'm, you're, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Uh, you were saying there that you basically, you got into the patent. You, so you patented uh, with 3M, the, the obviously fem, fem block. Yeah. So um, what we're able to do is um, taper a person off of, of right now or off of fentanyl, the prescription side of fentanyl patch. And we can also apply that to the illicit uh, use of fentanyl by alternating, taking it from the illicit needle or illicit uh, drug or liquid or however they're taking their drug and putting it in using the patch and then augmenting their uh tapering off by by the the barrier itself so mm. we hit both angles of the prescribed side and the illicit side by using yeah. the barrier so that takes you uh you know depending on the length of of uh use of the drug uh will i think equate to the length of of uh, your uh, tapering off you know if you're on mm. for three months it may take you four months to get off uh, but uh uh, there's no real equation to that. It's going to be between you and your doctor as yeah. to when you're tried to get off. Yeah, I think it's worth so it's worth noting for people who don't know that obviously um, fentanyl is one of the most addictive drugs in the world. With a hundred, it's a hundred times more addictive than heroin, if I'm correct in saying that statement. And also, dependency for fentanyl can come within two weeks. So from two weeks of being prescribed a drug, you can be addicted to it, which obviously doctors will prescribe for more than two weeks. So dependency can happen in a lot of the population who have prescribed it. And for people who are interested in more about obviously the fentanyl side of it, uh, there's the episode that I have with Brian Townsend, which they can go back and look on, but obviously we'll get into it here. Um, so fentanyl, of we we know is one of the deadliest opioids on the planet in terms of its synthetic. So the the cost to produce it in comparison to, say, the opium poppy is a lot less, so they can produce much more of it. But also around, it's around two or three grains of salt worth can kill a person. Mm -hmm. So which is why in comparison to the other drugs that you're on, like the hydrocodone, it's a, it's a, it's a much lesser dose. And... So for you, was it when, when you were on all of these drugs, did you, which one was having the most effect on you? Was it the fentanyl that was taking the most, the most severe effects or was it the, the, just a combination of everything? No, I, I, I would say certainly a combination, but uh, the one that stood out that, that uh, really impacted me was the fentanyl patch. And the reason I would pick, pick that is that every 72 hours, that patch needs to be replaced. Okay. Because the, the transdermal flow of the drug has, has been, ex they, they prescribe it this way, that it's been exhausted. So you need to replace it with a fresh patch. And when you do that, you've got about a three-hour window of vulnerability. And that vulnerability falls real quickly, especially at the end of the first full hour of no, no tape, no, titrate, no uh, uh, transdermal flow. Once that's taken off your skin, you really feel that... Uh, you're missing something, okay? Uh, and then it takes about two to three hours for that patch to warm up to your skin, uh, for the fentanyl to get into your capillaries, find its way, you know, into your blood system, 
and then into the opioid receptors and, and so forth, okay? So it takes about three or four hours, and those three or four hours are, are, are a real challenge. And that challenge became somewhat intolerable uh, so that you would find that I would have one patch on uh, almost all the time, only flipping them out individually on a random basis, okay? I would take one for 72 hours, and I, I'd have another one on, okay? And then uh, I would take this one off, flip it, put a new one on, and wait this one for another day or two, you know, and I'd rotate those. Uh, when I disclosed that to my physician, uh, he, he was extremely upset, uh, very angered. And I think his anger was pointed more directly to me because uh, I was really uh, skirting on the side of, of almost immediate death. And he mm -hmm. couldn't believe he was still living doing that. So he screamed at me and told me to stop it. Uh, I listened to him a little bit, but I continued in that process for well over a year until I realized I had. So, uh, uh, yeah, that's the story of the fentanyl patch. It's uh, you're absolutely right. Two weeks uh, you become uh, dependent on it and um, uh, you just find that uh, the the euphoric feeling is gone. You don't have that. I think it's just maintaining the status quo uh, that you don't have this feeling of, of, of withdrawal and you find yourself in that situation. I think a good way of describing it is so the body has a natural state of homeostasis which allows it to function throughout every day as normal and what happens is the body's homeostasis is altered as a result of the the opioids where the body becomes so dependent on it that when like you look at heroin users when they come off of when they try and come off like cold turkey come off of the drug they start rejecting everything they try to put in the body they get hot sweats cold they panic you know they feel like they're having a heart attack constantly heart palpitations throughout the day and it can last for for at least a week in some cases it's, it can be pretty extreme can't it and i guess i guess what is crazy to me for, with with your story in particular is that you had such a severe surgery in terms of for your cancer treatment and you almost so you it's a surgery where from what from what i gathered from listening to your episode with mike brown um on the opioid matrix it was a surgery that you could have died during but mm -hmm. then afterwards you were killing yourself slowly through opioid addiction as well yeah that's true i mean i was given uh before they began the surgery they gave they told my wife and I that I had a one million and one chance of surviving surgery. Wow! And he was the top. This was the top surgeon in the world at Massachusetts General Hospital, and he was a full, you know, department head plus uh, a full professor and department head at Harvard Medical. So uh, uh, he had done over a thousand uh, of surgeries of this type of cancer, but he had never contemplated one where mine was in my spine. And uh, ne they never, they never had that. This was all new to them. It has, and uh, so anyhow, yeah, I had a one in a million chance of living. Uh, the total uh, was about forty hours of surgery, and uh, so it was, uh, it was spread over a couple months. But the the first, the first uh, go at it was twenty three hours. Wow! So you can imagine a team of, of uh, seven chiefs of different departments 
from uh, uh, the uh, oncology, uh, orthopedic oncology, of which Dr. Uh, uh, Hornacek was, for, was head of, to uh, plastic surgery. Uh, they were all chiefs within the, the area of uh, Mass General and Harvard. So I had the best. Uh, but can you imagine them being there, almost like running a, an, or, a, uh, an orchestra, you know, or movie production? Everybody had to be in place at the specific time when Hornacek wanted something cut open or closed or whatever, you know. So uh, uh, a lot of effort went into uh, to, to operating on me, and um, you know, I came through it. It took me a week and a half in intensive care and a forced coma uh, for them to stabilize me after surgery. I never knew that, but uh, that's where I was for a week and a half, and then here I am. You know, so I'm I'm real fortunate and real blessed to. Uh, well to to be on you know to be still here yeah it's a, it's an amazing story what was the surgery itself what was so what 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 was the cancer and what was the severity of it so people can get an idea of why it took so long it's a cancer called chondrosarcoma which is uh cancer of of the soft tissue uh that surrounds our bones uh, it's incurable and uh pretty much fatal at the in certain cases, uh, where in cancer, normal cancer, you're stage one, two, or three, four, whatever. And if you ever heard about, you know, stage four cancer, and it's pretty much lights are out. Uh, mine was on chondrosarcoma, they're in class numbers, the same, same value, one, two, three, or four. And uh, when I was, I guess, uh, diagnosed with the, with the cancer, the, the orthopedic oncologist in Virginia said it was a class three. And uh, uh, what uh, the guys at Harvard said, they've never seen a class three uh, not running into a class four. And uh, so uh, when they got inside my system, uh, everything pointed to class four. And uh, uh, so that's why I got such a, you know, a, a, a tough line as to going in is that this is gonna be really hard uh, the fact is that if any part of that uh, tumor uh, resides after surgery, it'll it'll come back and it'll become back, it'll come back very aggressive. From their experience, in about thirty days, sixty days, it'll be into your lungs and heart, and you'll shut you down. So that was the that was a balancing act that uh, they told us about. So I figured it, you know, either I'm going to die during surgery and not know it, or it's going to be a short run after that. But uh, I came into the whole thing. I think a lot of it is optimistic viewpoints and and and, and strong faith. Uh, so, you know, I I wasn't at all. Uh, I can't remember a day being scared. I was confident that uh, you know the course was was pre written for me, uh, and however it turned out, um, you know that would be the way it is. Uh, but I also felt that and it's kind of a strange thing, but I also felt that. Uh, I would come through this, and if I did come through it, um, there would be a mission for me and, and a purpose. But it took seven years to figure out that that mission and purpose was to get off of the uh, opioid uh, addiction. Had nothing to do with it, with this cancer surgery, but it did. You know, so that was, that's what really uh, uh, it turned into a mission right now is to get this Fenblock product. Uh, into the service to, to save the lives of others because it'll do that.
Uh, one question before we get on to fe- the like Fenblock itself. Um, are you grateful for having been through this whole process because it's given you that purpose to help every other opioid addict or fentanyl addict to get off the drugs in a way that is safer than the ways that we have right now? Well, I'll summarize it this way, Ethan. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything in, in my life. Uh, I'd, I'd go through it again. Uh, so the answer to your question is, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Amazing. It uh, brought me uh, it brought me closer in my faith, okay, with Jesus Christ and, and God. That's uh, number one. Number two, it brought me closer to my family. And uh, you get up in your... I was 62 when I went for surgery. I'm 75 now. So even at 62, you're, you know, you're looking at, okay, I've done 62 years. Uh, and when I was 18, I was drafted uh, for Vietnam service. Uh, I failed the physical, thank goodness, I guess, uh, and never got deployed. Uh, they sent me home. And uh, so I, but, you know, I've been, I've been lucky. Uh, and I, I, uh, I feel like uh, uh, if I had died at 62, uh, I had a lot of friends that died at 18. Uh, if I lost my leg as a result of surgery, which happened, there's a lot of kids out there in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, that are in their 20s that have lost more than their leg. Uh, and I, so you, you kind of have to sit back and say, hey, you know, it's not why me. It's it's all about you, uh, and all about you and your kids and your grandkids and my grandkids and stuff. Uh, that we can, uh, you know, put something together, so simple, uh, so safe, uh, that it worked for me, and it, it's definitely going to. It's got the attention of the FDA in the United States. Uh, they've classified to us in conversations. They've never seen anything like it. Uh, and uh, it's got an opportunity to uh, to really work for the good of many, many people. Uh, it'll not only work on what we talk about fentanyl here, but we're real close to saying it can help people on heroin as well. Yeah, amazing. So yeah. when when you were obviously going through this this fentanyl addiction and you were figuring out a way to get off it, what was it that that pointed you in the direction of this patch that you use to help you come off the drug? Well, I'm, uh, I'm an artist. Uh, so I do a lot of painting <clears throat> and, uh, I, uh, I knew I wanted to, you know, reduce the flow, the transdermal flow. So, uh, artist tape is very, th- much of it's very thin. And, um, so I took a strip of artist tape, put it across the back of my, uh, fentanyl patch and put it on my, on my chest to see what would happen. And uh, after 72 hours pulling it off, it had eaten through the, the, uh, the artist tape. Uh, and so I said, well, that didn't work. So we got to find something else. Um, so we ended up, I ended up finding a, a material that would, uh, uh, would not have any transdermal flow. It would block the flow of fluids uh, against the skin. And it was a safe material that wouldn't, uh, do anything to your skin. It wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have any abrasion and things like that. So it was all, uh, uh, safe. And, uh, so I started to, uh, you know, like I said before, I measured it, 
uh, in volume uh, against what was flowing. So you got 100% of the patch on your skin. You drop it down by 5%. Now you're getting a 95% feed. And uh, you, you daily, I daily kept a, a diary. And I recorded my feelings. And my feelings are fine. So I would go to 10%, 15% and do the same thing. And I kept, you know, like I said, it took 14 months and, uh, you know, worked my, worked my way off. And when I got that uh, first material, you could always call it a prototype, you know. So I reached out to the manufacturer of that material, 3M, and uh, we took it from a prototype to a real product so that uh, their scientists uh, were behind it. And uh, they said, you know, you've got the right material. Uh, and uh, uh, we'll we'll help you get through the FDA clearance side. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, it, it is it's amazing. Interest, it's interesting to look at this as well because you said there that you wrote down your feelings every day and how it was affecting you coming off the dosage in you know five percent intervals. How did it affect your family at the peak of the addiction when you were obviously then searching for these? alternative routes to get off the drug and to to become clean because it's not just the individual it affects it of it affects the family as well yeah i think i think a lot of times you'll find your your families are kind of like bewildered uh in in the case of a prescribed opioid uh there's there's a chance that they're not going to they're not going to challenge that prescribed painkiller okay they're not going to say like a person who's doing the street fentanyl you need to quit, Neil. Okay, you need to get help. You need to go here and there and get help. Uh, on the prescribed side, they're really don't, they don't know what to do. Um, I was just uh, I was just going along with the flow, you know, and uh, uh, they saw what I didn't see, which was a a, a uh, you know a, a relative in decline. I felt like I was uh, doing just fine. All right, but what they would say is, you know, you. The color of your skin, uh, your eyes, they were they're just all messed up. Your eyes were yellow and that kind of crap. Uh, and, of course, I, I experienced uh, sometimes 27 hours, at least once at least once a month, 27 hours of, of nausea. All right? A constant nausea. I mean, I wasn't out of the bathroom more than a couple minutes. All right? So, uh, you know, I had I had a lot of reasons to, to, to change my action, but that wasn't the motivation that changed my action. Um, what I was one day, I uh, turned on the, the television and, and here, and uh, in the U.S. we have a C-SPAN, which is a, a public uh, broadcast of what goes on in Congress and around the government. And uh, I like history, so I was just I just tuned into that. And there was a rose garden ceremony by President Trump on a report of a study that he had enacted on the first. I guess, weeks of his administration. And that report was about the opioid epidemic in the United States. And I really wasn't aware that there was an opioid epidemic. Uh, so I listened to it. And when I listened to it, I pulled down the report and I read it. And I called my wife and I said, uh, I just read this report. And I listened to uh, President Trump uh, give his summation of it. And uh, uh, it scared the hell out of me. Uh, and when I read the report, it actually just concluded the fact that I was killing myself. And so she says, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to get off. She says, how are you going to do that? I says, I don't, I don't have a clue. I said, I've got so much opioids going into me 
that I really didn't know how dangerous they were, but they're killing me. My blood pressure is so severely low at that point uh, that, uh, uh, you know, and my pulse and my breathing had been slowed down by the uh, years of, of uh, taking this drug. And um, uh, so I said that uh, I got to figure a way out. And so we did on the pills, like we explained earlier, and then we did the, the barrier approach to, uh, to the patch. And uh, what they saw was uh, a rebirth. Um, and a lot of friends said the same thing as you, you may look good, you know, what are you doing? And I said, I'm off opioids, you know, or I'm getting off opioids. And they said, how are you doing it? And I, I would explain. And, and um, one guy I explained to was an engineer and he said, well, show me how you're doing it. So I showed him and he says, you know, that's uh, that can save a lot of lives for a lot of people. He says, you ought to uh, get in touch with insurance companies or pharmaceuticals because they'd love this technology you've developed. And uh, so that story ran uh, with me, took me home. And I wrote a letter to uh, the then uh, director of our National Institute of Health, uh, Francis Collins. I sent him an email letter uh, and surprisingly. Uh, 20 minutes later, he called me. And you got to remember, this guy's uh, pretty big in the National Institute of Health. Uh, and I'm just a guy sitting in the mountains of uh, central Virginia. So uh, his his uh, uh, cause for, to call me was, as a quote that he made to me was, uh, I'm calling you because uh, I've never received a solution to a national epidemic from a patient before. And I want to talk to you about what you're doing. And so he gave me some ideas. He told me to get it into the National Institute of Drug Abuse, let them look at it because we needed to get this on the market as soon as possible. And uh, he also told me to file for patent protection so that nobody would steal it. So I've done all that. And uh, so we're here now getting ready to go to market. Mm. So during the early creation phases of uh, FemBlock, what were some of the barriers that you came into uh, that kind of, because well, they obviously didn't push you off that path because you're here now with the FDA telling you that it's not anything like they've seen before. So what were some of the barriers that sort of pushed you away from it, which you were able to get back on with? Well, you, the difficulty was trying to convince somebody that it works. Um, mm. the, the other difficult part was to find the right material that when you presented these things to a doctor, uh, they knew that what you did with the material, because of its its uh, attributes of that material design, uh, made sense that it would block what you wanted to block, and uh, uh, the uh, the output of that was uh, a level of confidence. You know that I was on the right path. Uh, some of the barriers were not just uh, uh, acceptance of the idea, but it. Uh, you got to find people who want to get off. Number one, uh, in this in this stage of it, you know, I'm always said, that, I'm always told that uh, you know, you wanted to get off. You got to find somebody like yourself. And I said, yeah, I think that's true. Uh, once I my story gets out, and other stories pick up on people who want to get off, then it becomes a contagious situation where, you know, you and I are talking, and you find out that it worked for Neil, and so you've got a friend or, or relative that dealing with the same thing, well, you're something that positive because uh, there's no danger in what you're doing with FenBlock. There is danger in, in a lot of the options which are 
alternative drugs. So when do you get off of that? Rehab, rehabilitative services. Uh, the recidivism rates for that are, are too high. They're just, it's like a waste of money. And then there's other things of brain modulation and things like that, that, you know, they come with their own cost of risk and, and they come with high, very high expensive, uh, uh, you know, costs to the individual, which are not necessarily covered by insurance in the United States. So, uh, you know, I came in between all that stuff and uh, my cost to this product for, for a person is, is really relatively low. It's, it's, uh, it's very affordable. It'll be very affordable. And so, the barriers are trying to get it to a point where it's affordable, it works, uh, and uh, uh, the uh, the confidence of the community will, will will support that. That's that's where you're you know you're stepping up to get to that level. Yeah, I think it's important to point out with this as well the cost of alternatives. So when we're talking about rehab and things like that. A rehab in the U.S. is, say, on average, what about forty thousand dollars a month for f- to use the facilities of a rehab? It depends. Like if you're in south in the central part of Virginia, where I'm at, it's about eight thousand. <clears throat> but if you go to a, say a, a major, you know, uh, in in central Virginia, where I'm at, it'll run about eight thousand dollars a month. Uh, and across the country, it varies based on you know the the ability to pay. And large cities are, are expensive. Uh, they'll run thirty thousand, and then upwards in the in the real uh, exclusive areas of our country, it could be as high as eighty thousand dollars a month. Okay. So yeah, uh, we'll run we'll run about uh, maybe six hundred something like that. Uh, uh, and uh, the argument uh, for that is you're you're solving a two hundred dollar a day problem uh, for six hundred dollars a month. Yeah, and. Let's be honest, as much as people are going to complain about the cost of $600 a month, it's still much more affordable than sending someone to a rehab. I mean, there's one near me, I'm not going to say the name of it, obviously, because it's uh, give away the location, but it's, I think, around £18,000 per month. It's a high-end one, but again, people, most of the population who are addicted to these drugs can't afford to be sending people like family members and themselves to these kind of places. So to have an option, which is much more afford affordable and um, am I right in saying would be able in the U S to get it through insurance. Is that the idea to go with? Yeah, we're, we're, we're having meetings coming up with what we call as payers and uh, to find the channel, the, the, the proper channels into uh, the insurance companies uh, and, and I, it's all dependent too. I mean, it's going to be a lot easier to, to get to a payer uh, for their support when you have the FDA's approval of the product. Okay, um, I don't think it's a an element that they'll classify as experimental uh, because it's so such a low risk. Uh, you know, it's not like heart surgery in a different way that once they get approval by the FDA, uh, the insurance companies will classify. Well, that's still experimental until X number of things happen. Well, the reason they're doing that is, you know, it's a hundred thousand dollar surgery. Uh, you're talking about a six hundred dollar product, right? So uh, uh, maybe not even that much. We haven't really set a price on it. So you know, the argument of, of return on on their investment uh, is considerably high, and so their risk of of uh, uh, loss uh, in the use of this product is is I think absolutely zero. How did you get buy in? 
the initial buy-in from people who are around you now who are supporting the product and hoping to get it to market? Uh, they knew me. You know, in many cases, the, the initial players uh, were the people I, I would speak to you about uh, recognizing uh, a declining person and then reemerging uh, a, a more healthy uh, uh, person again. And uh, so they were they were my they were basically my my team that audited me as I as I went through one cycle to the next. Uh, from that, uh, it, when I would go for my annual uh, cancer uh, test, you know, to make sure that I wasn't I didn't have any cancer again, it was that oncologist that uh, really gave me the support and said, I think this thing is really considerable. And I think you saw the letter from Dr. Donson. Uh, about the product, but uh, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's it's it didn't happen all at one time. Uh, you've got to be persistent. Uh, they've got to understand that that this is this is real, uh, that it did work. Have a chance to examine what you, what you've been saying over a period of time, and build upon them the confidence of what you're trying to put together uh, is is uh, has a has a sound basis to it. So it starts out with uh, friends, family, uh, giving you confidence of what you've done, uh, and then turn into the fact, well, prove it to, prove it to somebody like, like you, Ethan, that, that it actually worked. So we're five years into this process, and now I've met you. And so the, the networking and things like that continues, and uh, that's very important. Yeah, it was very lucky that I stumbled across you on LinkedIn when the Brian Townsend episode released and I'd had a look, I think I'd had a look at who commented or who had reposted the, the video and you were one of them. And I saw in your profile that you were the creator of Femblock and I was interested, I was like, oh, what's that? And yeah, now we're having this conversation and I think it's one of the most powerful things that could come to market in the next few years in terms of ha- helping just end, not not even necessarily end helping reduce the severe numbers that we're seeing in terms of fentanyl deaths a year. Like I've got written down here in 2021, there was 71,000 fentanyl deaths in the U S alone. That is an incredible number of people. It's a football stadiums worth of people. And if we can reduce that number by even just five, 10, 15%, that's a significant amount of people saved yearly. Yeah. What I'll, what I'll send you is a report that was uh, released by the National Institute of Health just last week. And what's interesting about it is they talk about the failure of solving the fentanyl uh, problem across the United States. And in their, in their discussion of the failure components are the things we just talked about, alternative drugs and rehabilitative services. And the other components may even be, you know, the the brain modulation and things like that that gets to the receptor sides of the brain and tries to throw some frequency and radiation at them uh, to get them to, uh, you know, uh, remove their, uh, uh, their, their cells that say, I need to have more and more and more, get it back to normal. Um, what the NIH said is that they are looking that what needs to be discussed, what needs to be developed is a tapering methodology that slowly gets a person off of fentanyl. They don't have a clue that I'm out here, okay? They will in a few weeks, okay? And uh, what we did was we we immediately turned around and wrote to the the uh, administrative uh, director for 
our National Institute of Health, and for the Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration, that we are here. We have the answer to that, and it's it's basically going into FDA for approval uh, this well, this past week, and it's we've on you know we're beginning our discussions with them, and it's a serious it's a serious uh, you know submission. I mean, you're talking right now it'll be it'll be around fifty thousand dollars totals to date. Uh, and it may go up to a half a million, but, uh, um, you know, we're in it. And, and what was interesting was anybody that has been following me and saw that report, they say, oh, my golly, that's exactly what Fenbach does. So uh, yeah. we were ahead of our time. Mm, which is incredible. But in terms of the financials, as you've mentioned there, there's $50,000 that have gone into it already and 500000 which is a possibility over this the, the the course of the FDA approval. How is this all being funded? Um, is because I know, I know myself that you've put a lot of money into this because you believe in the product so much. But to fund all of it is going to probably become quite problematic. So what are you doing in terms of funding to help get over the line? Yeah, to give you to give uh, you know your your listeners an idea is that. Uh... Besides the fifty thousand, that's just the op- that's just our submission fees for the Food and Drug Administration's eva- evaluation. That's all that is. Uh, prior to getting to the FDA, uh, the total investment in the product is about two hundred seventy-five thousand uh, dollars. Of that, about one hundred and fifty to one hundred sixty thousand is mine. Uh, about a hundred thousand is from my orthopedic oncologist. So uh, uh, there's only two of us that are you know, doing that. Uh, I'm in the process right now of transferring a, about another $100,000 of my own money uh, into the business to, to offset what we expect to see as uh, uh, the FDA <clears throat> expenses, plus uh, the, the hiring of, of consultants to, to help us work through the FDA you know, as, it gets, as it gets into the test side and clinic side. So that could, that's where the money is going to really, uh, you know, you're going to burn a lot of cash. Yeah, and I think it's good. It's just good to give people that perspective because, you know, it's all it's all sunshine and rainbows talking about trying to get a product approved for for market, but not understanding actually how much personal money is going into this. But also, it tells a really great story of how invested you are in this product and how invested you are in seeing people's lives change for the better as well. Yeah, well, that's, that's true, and I, I, I hesitate to, to make them believe that I'm a wealthy guy. I'm not. Um, I was bankrupt at the end of the cancer surgery. Okay. Uh, I had had a, um, 6,000 square foot home. Uh, I was making, uh, upwards of a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, on my own. I, I didn't have insurance. Uh, so there's the story, right? So you get diagnosed with deadly cancer, right? So we lost our house. Uh, we're living in a nice apartment, but we're in an apartment. Uh, we went from 6,000 square foot to 1,300. Um, and at 60, 62, so forth, you know, you, you don't have access to your retirement in the United States, all right, without severe tax consequences, which would be penalties for invading your, your, uh, your, your investment in your retirement. So uh, I wasn't touching that. So we went through bankruptcy. And, and through that time period, I came across the age of 65. And at 65, I'm now, you know, pretty well into uh, the, the addiction. 
And, uh, you know, there's there's a little bit of flow from retirement funding, funds coming in. Uh, so I'm getting myself recovered. And then all of a sudden, this this opportunity opens up. And, I you know, I start thinking about getting the patents done. And so the patents in themselves uh, cost $140,000. Uh, so uh, there was three patents over a period of about a year and a half. And so... <clears throat> Where do you get that money? Well, I withdrew all my uh, four in the U.S. The private personal savings of it's called a four hundred one k. That's gone. That's money's gone. Uh, then I cashed in my my uh, pension program, and that's what I'm using right now. So um, yeah, I'm fully invested to help somebody else. It's not that because I say I got a couple hundred thousand into this and I'm looking to go through another hundred uh, that I'm wealthy guy. Uh, I'm in it for keeps and uh, I'm in it so that, you know, somebody else gets the experience of of uh, 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 of the benefits uh, that I learned. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that's going to be a really uh, a good, uh, um, I guess, payback, you know, so it'll it'll yeah. it'll bring, a, you know, you say 360 degrees, it brings it right back to home. That's what I'm looking mm. for. So what does the timeline look like? The t- well. Yeah, the timeline look like for Fenblock, and when do you plan to, or at least hope to have it on the market? Well, it's it's right now. It's ready to go on the market. Okay, it's a product. It's produced. We just need to package it. That's the only. That's the only outstanding challenge that that's easily solved. Um, what we're doing through our congressional representatives is we're submitting a, a letter to the FDA for, for options for our patients or our clients uh, under what uh, the Trump administration instituted was called right to try. So that was really for life, <clears throat> life-threatened uh, cancer patients that were basically going to die. And there's experimental drugs out there that uh, they normally wouldn't have access to because they're experimental. Uh, the laws were changed so that you know, you have a right to try to save your life. And as, as Trump has said, is that saved, you know, tens of thousands of lives so far. So we're going to ask that we have, that our people have the access to uh, Fenblock while it's in the test, <clears throat> while it's going under clinical evaluation. And actually the data fed that we would obtain from these people will become part of the clinical test. And so it'll serve two purposes. The second option that we're asking for is what's called emergency use authorization. That was created when they distributed the COVID vaccines. Okay, COVID vaccine was basically first tested on people, which normally that never happens, right? So the government forced us to take it. And in order to take it, we became part of the testing process itself. So emergency use said to the FDA is, let this, let this device called a vaccine go into the market untested, uh, and will resolve, will absolve the uh, pharmaceuticals from any liability downstream, because it's in, a, in an emergency. Well, the largest emergency in the United States, based on epidemics right now, is fentanyl. So our argument is we can save a life, and and we're in an epidemic, and uh, give it give our patients a chance to reach out and try this. So that's that's our motivation right now, and we'll do that in. Our plans are to address that and, and focus on two things, captured, basically captured 
patients. And you would find them in departments of corrections, uh, you know, that are coming into jail and they're addicted and things like that, where right now they're just forced into cold turkey. Uh, now we have a way of managing them to get off of their addiction. And, and then in uh, uh, regards to like cancer patients and, and uh, heart, uh, cardiac surgery patients, uh, where you have a controlled point where the doctor wants to get them off of the fentanyl patch, because that's a, that's a, a routine uh, process of getting a fentanyl patch after those serious surgeries. So we've got, you know, we're optimistic. Uh, to answer the first question you asked was, uh, what's our timeline? We'd say six months uh, is the optimum, uh, maybe 12 uh, as the pessimistic side. Okay. Yeah. So, so it's, it's, it's a long time to go, but it's definitely worth worth the wait for yeah. to getting on the market and stuff. Yeah. You got that stopgap there. You can go into the emergency use or right to try. And uh, I think once it, once that catches on, maybe the pressure will be uh, you know that experience is is uh, is basically certifying my claims that it's easy, it's safe, you know that kind of stuff, and it might expedite evaluation uh, and reduce the scope of clinicals required by the FDA, which would expedite the the uh, marketability of the product. Yeah, uh, you're not. The thing is, as well, you're not just looking to enter the US market with this you want to go worldwide so what's the plan with that and how are you planning to attack that as a strategy well we're looking at uh, certainly you to help us in, in, in getting this thing into the European market the Australian market uh, we have been talking to the uh, Ministry of Health in Canada uh, so we're, we're we're anxiously looking for uh, uh, the right just to jump in rapid Remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast. Also rate it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as that just helps to push the podcast to new listeners who may be interested in it. They might not be, but please do that because it helps me. Um, so yeah, enjoy the rest of the episode. Finally back and we are going again. So, okay. Neil, let's, let's, get, right. let's get it right this time. So the international market you're planning to tackle. So how are you and Femblock planning to do that and planning to saturate the market with your product? Well, one good example, Ethan, is uh, our connections with you uh, and that we, we really believe in, in talking to people initially and getting them uh, to understand what we've done, what we can do together, and uh, your feedback as to, you know, helping us with our next steps. So, uh, for example, working with you to get into the UK and, and the, uh, uh, the Commonwealth countries around the world. Uh, certainly is is a, a high priority. Okay, so as as that information also starts to grow in success, we'll find our way into other uh, countries. And I think uh, through your broadcast and things, interest should be uh, you know growing. And if we plant a seed somewhere, then you know we all don't have the greatest of of uh, uh, participation in our podcast. As we really you know we don't have the tens of millions of people watching it. Uh, it'll start to grow, though. The, 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 the seed will work. And uh, we'll, we'll together, from our experience of how we're experiencing our getting into different markets, we'll be able to do it in a uh, more effective and efficient way. So we're counting on you know, people like yourself uh, to get us in the conversation, from the conversation into uh, the test, into the test to help us navigate uh, how we get into uh, government approval processes and things like that because 
you know, I wasn't born to do this. I was a bank auditor for years. And uh, so this is all new. So I need help. And, uh, you know, that, that's that's really the fun part of it. What I'm interested in hearing as well is how you've got the likes of Mike Brown on board. Because for Mike Brown's going to be on an episode next week. So he'll be coming out the week after you. Um, but for those who don't know who Mike Brown is, Mike Brown is a DEA agent who's spent uh, over a decade looking into drug trafficking um, he spent time abroad in Pakistan and places like that where the you know the productions of drugs and sale of drugs are rife um, and he is obviously an expert in the field of opioids so how did you get the likes of him and others who say Brian Townsend who you do know to sort of back the product it all comes through uh, the app uh, LinkedIn uh, where we've uh, we've made our our links uh, on on the case of uh, Mike Brown, uh, he again was perusing through the uh, the internet, and I think he's always looking, as he called it, an off ramp uh, solution that's different that would work for uh, his uh, concerns on the fentanyl uh, uh, drugs. And he came across my website, uh, went in, looked at it, and said, "This is the off ramp that they've been looking for." Uh, you know, we're limited right now because we're focused on prescribed. That was our initial mission. Uh, once we get into the the, the mission is, is marketable, uh, that'll fund on uh, strengthening on the, the illicit drugs. But we do know that we can take and transition person, people off of illicit fentanyl to a fentanyl patch from the fentanyl patch using the FenBlock technology, barrier technology, get them to wean themselves off of that in a safe way. So mm -hmm. it'll work. So uh, Mike found me just pretty much like you did. Uh, he was uh, very, very uh, captured by what he read and what he talked to me about. Uh, he's had me on a podcast and uh, uh, soon thereafter, uh, he uh, became a very important advisor for me going forward. And his focus is on certainly the narcotic problems out in the, out in the world, not just on prescribed fentanyl. So uh, he's the type of person I need to lead uh, that side of the market opportunities. So that's that's where we are. And we look forward to him helping us do that. Yeah. No, I think that some of the people that you've got on board with the, with the project are incredible in terms of the caliber that they bring to such a, you know, such a, such a novel, well, novel, is novel the right word? Yeah. Subject. Yeah. They, they bring a lot of knowledge to to the field, and I think it's really going to set you apart from anyone else who's, you know, who may be trying to compete in the market. Yeah, but, as you start a business like this uh, in healthcare, uh, really uh, the uh, the the team behind it, which they uh, say the outside investor looks at, is what's going to be your management you know, team. Okay, uh, that team of advisors has shifted. Uh, if you go back four years ago when I started the business plan, uh, there's only a couple people that are still on that list of advisors that were on the initial list, okay? Uh, because I knew that I had to, I had one person tell me, you need to strengthen your advisor team. And so, you know, we went and got pharmacists, uh, we got scientists on there, addiction science, addiction medicine. Uh, we got uh, rehabilitative service people on there. Uh, we've got uh, medical doctors, uh, 
and uh, we're even talking to actually a, uh, uh, I guess you would call them in, in, I don't know what you call them in, in uh, Europe, but uh, they're, they're undertakers, you know, they take care of you at death. And uh, so what he's, what his background will help us with is dealing with people at lo times of severe loss in their family, surprising loss. So he has to, you know, his home, his, his funeral home has to deal with these, especially young kids uh on a re too regular of a basis so his input to us and how we counsel our clients and how we put this out on the market to help save those lives uh even though it's kind of like that's really a far reach no it's a very important understanding of the impact that these drugs have across the, our country so we've got a, a really variety of very highly skilled people now that work with me yeah and mike, yeah. mike brown mike brown and, and now yourself uh uh we uh we've built a good team hmm. yeah only to get bigger and better as well that's right keep it we want <laughs> we want to keep it manageable uh there's a lot <laughs> of people that would like that would like to join uh and, and and be a part of this but we'll we'll see as we get bigger you know as we as we get more successful yeah yeah what what are the main things that you've learned during this process because as you said you're a bank you were a bank auditor as your career, you weren't, you know, you weren't in the medical field at all. So what are the main things you've taken away from this process? Well, you have to be, uh, you have to be open to criticism. Um, you've got to be, you know, you're going to challenge you on your credentials. Uh, a lot of times a personal or an investor would say to me is what gives you the uh, experience uh, to understand, you know, drug addiction. And I said, well, I, you know, I've been an addict. You know? mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would throw it right back at him and say, you know, well, what, what gives you the right to tell me that I, I don't have any experience in it, you know? But uh, yeah, you're always challenged. There's a lot of uh, people out there that doubt uh, that, you know, of your sincerity and uh, persistence, continuity of your, of your mission, your statements, your conversations with others. Uh, that'll win over people and you can't, you can't be uh, uh, deterred by uh, uh, people shutting the door on you. Uh, out of a normal sales cycle, you knock on 100 doors, one door will answer. Out of those 100 of those doors that answer, 10 may become a customer. So, uh, you know, you really got you got to just stick with it. And uh, it's it's not easy. Uh, but, I, I you know, I've never kind of doubted that uh, I wanted to keep moving forward, even though a lot of times I've had people say, you know, you, you, you should either sell the technology, the intellectual property, the patents, you sell those and get out. Why do you want to produce this? You know, uh, well, I mean, if, if I don't produce it, my fear is that, a, say, a pharmaceutical will buy this and put it on the shelf because it basically goes against them selling uh pain medication or opioids in any yeah. form. And so, you know, they're not going to be so happy to, to see somebody come on board in their companies to turn, turn down their profit line. So uh, mm. there's a lot, a lot of uh, pressure. And in, in politics itself, there's a lot of pressure against this, even though you, you think that uh, they would be happy to, to endorse it. Um, no, I haven't found a I haven't found a politician yet that's uh, happy to endorse it. They're they like to they like the concept as long as long as it gets them reelected. Yeah, 
I think it's interesting as well to point out that, well, like you said there, if a pharmaceutical company was to buy it, it's very unlikely they would put it on the market because that would then negatively affect their profit lines from the drugs that they're producing and selling. So if it, like if you go back to Purdue Pharma and we talk about them, their, their philosophy was we want to end pain and they want to stop pain before we get to, you know, get to the customer. Um, and it's interesting because, so I had surgery on my foot in 2020 and I remember coming out of surgery and they tried to prescribe me uh, codeine. And when I was prescribed the codeine, I said, I don't need it. I'm not in pain. And they said, but you don't want to be in pain. You want to avoid the pain. So start taking it now. And to me, that was crazy because they were trying to mask the pain and then me never feel the pain. So I don't understand what the pain feels like. So I feel like that legacy from these pharmaceutical companies of let's avoid pain, let's end pain is still going on today, even though the likes of Purdue Pharma, you know, we they've been outed as this horrendous company who lied and told, you know, told people less than 1% of people got addicted to oxycodone. And it was 10 times even more higher than that which is what is crazy to me, the fact that this legacy is still going today. Yeah, it just transitions into other drugs, and, and the, the practice becomes the same. Uh, when I was, uh, and a lot of people, before surgery, they're given a fentanyl tablet or a hydrocoding tablet, something like that, that, uh, you know, you're supposed to, once you get through the surgery, wherever minor it is or what major, major it may be, uh, yeah, you, you don't uh, reflect on pain. But one of the things that they have to really address is that um, they have a doctor has no way to tell that you're telling the truth because nobody knows what pain is until they experience it. So every day for seven months, I was at the ho in the hospital every day. They would ask me what my pain level was. And the score was to take it from one, no pain, to 10, you know, chronic pain. Um, I knew that if I, if I went to a five, I wouldn't get but half the dosage that I wanted to get, okay? Because I was already into this deal. I didn't want to experience pain. So I would always say 20. And they'd say, 20? Oh, no, we stop at 10. I said, well, if we stop at 10, I'm going to 20. So I'd always told them that I was having pain, but I never was. And I, just wanted, to make sure that, I wanted to make sure that that time when I asked for pain medication that day, they would have already approved it. So I didn't want to have any hesitation in, in receiving the pain medication if I needed it. And if I was dropped down to a different score in the morning, uh, I wouldn't get the same amount of, of relief in, in medication. So I was already, you know, basically thinking through the fact is that I'm into this and I don't want to get out of it. And so they've got you. They've already got you trapped before you go home. Yeah. And it's, I, it's, I think it's important to point out there as well that, these doctors, although there are some terrible ones, like, for example, the woman on The Pharmacist, the documentary, the woman who was prescribing hundreds of thousands of pills, and she just was ready to hand them out to whoever came by. But there are a lot of doctors where they do have a patient's best interests at heart, but it because pain is subjective, it's so hard for them to see whether they are actually in pain or not, because... You know, if someone comes in and says they're in pain, they kind of just have to believe the person unless they're seeing the addictive tendencies. It could be a functioning addict who's coming into their 
the doctor's office and saying, I need pay, I need pain medication. I'm a 20 out of 10 pain. But because they aren't showing that those signs of addiction, they have to kind of give it to them. They can't say really say no, because if they don't, then it could be deemed unethical. Yeah, that's true. That's that's the that's that's the problem that the doctors have to deal with. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what the solution is. There has to be a way of of somehow measuring pain in a, in a quantitative way. And, and it's hard. It's difficult for them. So, uh, you know, uh, that's something that, uh, you know, I took advantage of. I also took advantage of hoarding drugs. I would take, I would ask, I would, you know, increase the, uh, uh, the prescription uh, renewal uh, at, pra- at times that uh, were kind of like surprised to my doctor. I, you know, I, I need some more. So he would authorize a renewal earlier than normal. And those early renewals just basically took the pills and hoarded them. And uh, mm-hmm. so by the end of my, you know, uh, seven years of, of uh, uh, manipulating the program, I had hundreds of uh, hydromorphin pills. I had 50, 60 pills of hydrocodone, and I had about 70 patches of fentanyl. And wow. uh, yeah, so I have, you know, you hoard, people hoard. So there has to be more control. And I've got ideas on how to fix that. Uh, but because of the practice I went through and the fact that I'm pretty much a, a pretty good auditor, I was looking at the weaknesses in their systems of control. And I've, mm-hmm. I've pointed out some really significant areas where we get in front of the pharmaceutical industry. We need to change some of their practices. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely an interesting point. What, what are some of those practices that you believe should be changed? It's, it's a relationship to pharmaceutical uh, with the insurance company. Uh, if you go and you have a renewed, uh, renewed uh, prescription, uh, say, for tomorrow, uh, you could have gotten that prescription renewed three days earlier or four days earlier. The insurance company would pay for that at that point. They don't pay for it at the day it's supposed to be renewed. They pay three to four days, maybe a week before. Okay, so you play with those terms and you start to get you start to, you know, you say you say now you're four days ahead for your second renewal. All right. Now you go to four days ahead of that day. Now you're eight days ahead. That's eight days of medication. Okay, so you start hoarding those eight days. All right. It becomes a, a, a tremendous amount of volume that you're able to hoard, put aside because you're already, you know, you're already adequately uh, uh, in, in, you're adequate in, in the uh, amount of medication that you've got. You're just making it come quicker and you don't need it. So you put it aside. So over those seven years, that's how I did that. I just kept going early, going early. You say three or four days, that doesn't sound like much. But over seven years, every month getting a renewal, that's a significant amount of change. You know, you're able to, to capture and, and, uh, and put aside and you could sell it. Uh, you do anything you want. Nobody, nobody follows up on that. So they need to, they need to make those those uh, renewal things uh, more rigid. Mm. Yeah. I to be honest, I think where where we've what we've discussed and what we've gone through is has been absolutely incredible. I think we've really delved into what you're trying to do and your philosophy behind what you're doing, and I think it's been great. But there's one question that I always end with every guest that I do have on. And that is how would you like to be remembered? Oh, just an inventor. Okay. You know, Love it. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
a solid uh, parent, grandparent. And uh, mm. that's pretty much it. That's a good achievement. Amazing. You know, the fact is that the invention side of it is incredibly exciting to me because I never thought I would ever do anything like that. So, so I'm, I'm kind of happy with that, you know? Yeah, no, it's amazing what you're doing. And I really appreciate you coming on. Let everyone know where they can find you. Obviously, if you've got any correspondence in terms of if you've got any questions about FemBlock, they can come to me through my email for the podcast, but also yourself. If anyone wants to get in touch with you, you know, they want to offer their support or what have you, how can they get in touch with you? Do you want, you want me to say yeah. yeah yeah you're so your email or whatever oh, like whatever you're willing to give to people the website is uh fenblock med f-e-n-b-l-o-c-k med.com and my email address is neil at fenblockmed.com and uh the website has all the contact information on it so you're welcome to go to that and then uh for anyone uh i would suggest you get in touch with ethan and uh we'll uh We'll uh, work to, with you together to, to uh, answer all your questions. Yeah, amazing. Appreciate you coming on. All right, Ethan, take care. Have a good one. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Neil Jackson. He's an amazing guy and, you know, I really loved having a conversation with him. He's very insightful, very open and honest about his addiction and the problems he's faced and how it affected his family. Um, so, yeah, leave your comments down below if you've got any questions for Neil or for myself about the episode. And over the next two weeks, there's going to be two more episodes to do with the opioid crisis, as I find it a personally fascinating topic. So I'll be having on uh, Mike Brown, who is a former DEA agent who has worked abroad in Pakistan, um, Myanmar and all sorts of countries. And also Danielle Burke, who is a former addict herself and now social worker. So look forward to them coming out and I will see you next week for another episode.